Dedicated to the survival of American democracy in an increasingly dangerous world, this is Secure Freedom Radio with Frank Gaffney, acted as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Policy under President Ronald Reagan, founder of the Center for Security Policy in Washington, D.C., the go-to man for defense and foreign policy issues, joined by the greatest minds in the security policy business, the special forces in the war of ideas at Secure Freedom Radio. Radio with Frank Gaffney. Welcome to Secure Freedom Radio. This is Frank Gaffney, your host and guide for what I think of as an intelligence briefing on the war for the free world. A very, very critical battle in that war is underway on the home front at the moment. It is the battle to preserve and, in fact, assure the future availability of free and fair elections in America. It is taking the form of a legislative slugfest that will be playing out in the next few hours on the floor of the United States Senate. It is about a piece of legislation that has come to be known as the Corrupt Politicians Act. Its formal title is the For the People Act. Um, It was called H.R. 1 in the House. It is S1 in the Senate. Or maybe it's not. We're going to find out exactly what is going on in the Senate at the moment and why with one of the country's preeminent experts on this subject and many others. Her name is Jessica Anderson. She is the executive director of a terrific organization in Washington, D.C., Heritage Action for America. She is uh, responsible for among other things, the very concerted effort that Heritage Action is leading in what they call Save Our Elections. And I think you can find out a lot more about it, um, not only from what you're going to hear from Jessica in these segments, but also in her website, saveourelections.org. Jessica Anderson, it is so good to have you back. I know how frantically busy you are at the moment because... All of this is coming to a head uh, within the next day or so. Thank you for joining us at Secure Freedom Radio once again. It's great to have you with us. Frank, it's it's great to be here with you today. Thanks for having me. Good. Listen, I want to start, if I can, with you uh, talking a little bit about how we got to this point, um, specifically the 2020 election cycle. A lot of focus, of course, on the presidential contest, but um, it would seem as though some of the problems that afflicted the Trump versus Biden race also mattered down ballot as well. And I thought maybe we might just start with um, what is going on in Arizona at the moment in terms of the forensic audit there and what it's suggesting. uh, The conclusions are not yet released, of course, but what it's suggesting from what we've seen so far about various techniques that seem to have compromised that election last year. So what's interesting, Frank, is that after the November 2020 election, We all kind of have looked at that day to try to understand exactly what happened and why. The why matters just as much as the what. And part of the the chaos around election 2020 was brought on by these COVID convenience laws that circumvented and went around uh, state legislators. They went around state laws and they were put into place by very... um, in some cases, corrupt. Uh, I I don't think we should shy away from saying what it was. In some cases, corrupt uh, local officials trying to take advantage of the COVID lockdowns and crisis at the time to to create laws that put into doubt um, the vote, put into doubt the security and the sanctity of the ballot box. And so as these audits are happening, 
throughout the country, Arizona obviously being top of mind. Um, they're working on um, some of this in states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Fulton County, Georgia. I think you're going to start to see these trend lines where you have abuses of those COVID convenience laws um, that then gave way to fraud and it gave way, certainly gave way um, to election observers that were cut out from actually uh, watching the chain of custody, watching the ballot counting. Um, and you add that, you add the chaos of November on top of the vulnerabilities that already existed in state laws around the accuracy of voter registration lists around some states requiring voter ID, others not, around how you request an absentee ballot, whether it's from a request form or it's automatically sent, are there any security watermarks or provisions on the absentee, the time period for early voting, the placement of drop boxes. I mean, it's a whole list of, of items that are in state law and whether or not that law was followed um, or if a corrupt official tried to circumvent um, the election law in place and use COVID as the distraction or the excuse. So all of that is in the backdrop of these audits. And as each of these audits go forward, I think you're going to get, again, continue to see more of the what and more of the why over what happened in November. That's a terrific overview. Um, let me drill down on a couple of things that you said. We've seen in the last election cycle, again, I think you call them COVID convenience laws, um, this effort to proliferate massively the use uh, not of absentee ballots, but just simply mail-in ballots. Talk a little bit, Jessica, about our experience with that. Um, going back, I think it was to, what, 2001 when uh, Jimmy Carter and Jim Baker on a bipartisan electoral reform commission warned vigorously against this idea of using mail-in ballots and talk a little bit about why they did. Yeah, it's interesting that you you bring up the Carter-Baker commission because that was that was bipartisan. I mean, of course that was a number of years ago now, but that that had bipartisan support so from a from a Democrat and Republican perspective, you had agreement that things like mail-in ballots that didn't have security provisions and that weren't directly uh, attached to voter registration lists and, and then cross-coordinated across the different agencies within a state government that are in charge of those voter registration lists, that that then um, could give way to fraud. It could give way to bad and malicious actors that were trying to steal the election. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting historically because everyone agreed to that then, but then you fast forward to 2021 and 2022, and all of a sudden it becomes this fiercely partisan and divisive conversation around mail-in ballots. And it's and I think the conservative perspective on this needs to be made very, very clear. We're not saying that mail-in ballots shouldn't exist. We're not saying they should be outlawed. Of course, there are reasonable expectations to use an absentee ballot like if you are a student and you're not um, in your home, uh, you're not at your home to vote, you're away at college, or if you're um, part of our armed forces and you're deployed, um, or if you're moving, you know, you're relocating state to state, but your residency stays there. So, or, or a disabled elderly. I mean, those were the original intent when absentee mail-in ballot came onto the scene. The problem now is that they are being sent out without any 
legitimate causal reason, and they're not duplicated or deduplicated against voter registration list versus if you're voting in person or how many ballots you're sent. People have been sent upwards of three different ballots to the same address. And so that sort of chaotic housekeeping breeds more and more chaos, which then lays the seed or the groundwork for the type of fraud that should worry all Americans. But I, I do think, you know, not to belabor the point, but it is important that we, we go back to the principles. What was the original intent of an absentee mail-in ballot? Where are we today? Well, we are, we are light years away from that. And, and the Bipartisan Voting Commission from, you know, a decade and a half ago was right to call out the concerns of fraud, were right to call it out today. And I certainly applaud states like Arizona and Georgia and Iowa and Florida that are trying to right those wrongs so we can get back to the original intent of what an absentee ballot is used for and how to use it in an election. Again, I think that's an elegant presentation of the arguments against doing this. We're going to come back to uh, why that matters so much. But before we do, just one other point on this. You touched on this again, Jessica Anderson. What is it that causes people to believe that we don't need to identify voters like we do people who have bank accounts or who are collecting you know, uh, welfare payments or entering federal buildings or any number of things. Um, this this being so important, this civic duty of ours, it would seem a no-brainer. And I, I gather from public opinion surveys that the vast majority of Americans think it is a no-brainer to have voter ID laws. Um, we didn't see it in, in many of these states. And again, this is a, a, a present question as well. But but talk about the logic of foregoing that and what it does in practice in terms of uh, inviting fraud in elections. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought up voter ID. You know, it's something that consistently polls nationwide over 85 to 95% of Americans support it. And I think part of the reason for the support is not only the trust and veracity at the ballot box, but it's also because voter ID is such a a part of our of our daily life already. I mean, I use an ID to get on an airplane to buy wine. Um, in you know, the state of Maryland, where I live, we use an ID to go to MLB baseball games, pick up our tickets from the will call, you use an ID for concerts, you use an ID to get into federal buildings. So it is it is certainly part of our day-to-day um, interactions already. So why would we not want voter ID at the most sacred part of our American institutions, which is the ballot box, to be able to vote, to be able to prove you are who you are when you show up to vote that day. And so critics of voter ID, they have a mission in mind, which is they want ineligible and oftentimes illegal voters to vote. And the best way to allow an influx of ineligible voters is to not have any safeguards tell you if they are who they say they are. And that's why they're critiquing so much of voter ID, because they want to be able to bring in new swaths of voters that are ineligible with the goal of rigging that election for the progressive cause. You know, if H.R. 1 passes, then then certainly for the rest of my generation, if it doesn't, then we'll see how it goes state by state. Yeah. And this brings us to where I needed to go next. Main topic of today, which is we're seeing these kinds of arrangements proposed as part of permanent national 
federal law um, in this bill, H.R. 1, S. 1. What is the motivation for that, to put a fine point on it? Well, I think the progressive left has actually um, surprisingly been pretty clear about what their motivation is. AOC, the founding and, and leading member of the Democrat squad, uh, as we know, they, they call themselves, came out and point blank said last week that the purpose of HR1 is that Democrats don't have to fight for another election ever again and that they will just win them. And, you know, she said the quiet part out loud. You got to hand it to her. She was just very clear about what the whole purpose is. And we've been this since January that HR1 is an attempt to have a complete federal overtake of the entire country's election systems at the state and local levels and have a one-size-fits-all election process and program that ultimately rigs the elections so that progressive Democrats will win every forthcoming election afterwards. And part of it gets at what we were just talking about, where it would eliminate voter ID laws, where they actually write in the bill um, a whole, like, multiple section, a whole bunch of lines around ineligible voters, and the pathway for illegal, illegal aliens to actually be able to vote in our election, they, they write it out very clearly that there wouldn't be any prohibition um, uh, disallowing illegal immigrants and illegal aliens to vote in our election. So you could come to the country illegally on a Friday and vote on a Tuesday under the new regime that HR1 would create for our federal election system. That is concerning and that is their goal. They cannot win on the policies alone. So they resort to tactics like this. And this is exactly why I think you've seen such an outpouring of, of activism and frustrating um, and frustration from grassroots activists and leaders across the country because they're saying no and they're stepping up and, and fighting back and saying we don't want to see our elections overcome. We want to keep ballot security and we want to keep the sanctity of our vote in place when we go to the ballot box in November. So, Jessica, this brings us to the state of play in the Senate at the moment. There's a lot, it seems, of high drama, the stakes being as high as they are. It'd be surprising if there weren't. A lot of it is turning on a senator from West Virginia by the name of Joe Manchin. Uh, Tell us about his position on this legislation and what both he and the Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer, are doing to try to engineer the approval of some kind of election reform legislation and quite possibly one that has many of the very adverse and and really insidious aspects that you've just described. So Senator Manchin of West Virginia often finds himself in a pickle like this, where he is trying to appease the West Virginia voters back home that are um, more moderate. Some even are right of center. They're very reasonable um, God-loving, country-loving West Virginians, right, that want to see Manchin uphold things like the Senate filibuster and oppose the federal overtake of our elections with S-1. You, you say appease. It, it seems to me a better word for it would be represent the people of his state. Yeah. That represent. That's exactly right. Represent West Virginians. But then he wants to appease those on his other shoulder, which is the far left, progressive agenda of his party. And unfortunately for Manchin, the Democrat Party is moving further and further and further to the left. And on this issue of S-1, they have done it um, in, a, in, a, in a way that is most revealing to their aims, as we just talked about with the goal of, of S-1. And so 
Manchin has come out and he has said that he still supports the filibuster. And he has said that he wants a series of um, changes to S1. Now, the press is running with this and they're framing it as Manchin's compromise. And so the best way I know how to describe this is this is political theater. There's not really a process that would allow Manchin's quote unquote compromise bill or legislative package to actually be taken up in the Senate to speak because they don't have the vote on the motion to proceed. So the state of play of where we are now is Senator Schumer has filed cloture on Senate Bill 1, which which is the amended bill from what went through the committee. So he exercised something called Rule 14, and I don't want to get too wonky here, but he took the bill that was supposed to have been discharged from the committee, and instead of having a vote on that discharge vote, he he exercised Rule 14, which then substituted S1 with that committee bill plus the manager's package. So there actually were a couple of changes there. They're not substantive, but it's it's a whole new bill with the same principles of S1 before. So this, then, is, this is a little wonky, I have to say, I'm, and I might have lost you myself, let alone our audience. But Jessica, I guess basically what you've said is Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, has used his authority to try to figure out a way to accommodate Senator Manchin to some extent while preserving most of what's wrong with S1. And somehow thereby get to the requisite number of votes for this legislation. Have I got that about right? That's about right. The, the, the clincher is the mansion bill or the mansion set of compromises that he wants to see in the bill, they don't exist yet. And that's why it's theater, because it actually isn't being put into the package that will be voted on Tuesday. So instead, what you're seeing is Schumer saying, Senator Manchin, thank you for your edits and suggestions. We'll take them under under consideration. But he doesn't actually take those elements and change S1 at all. And that's because of the way the procedure is in place. So instead, the motion to proceed, which is the Tuesday vote in the Senate, it will fail. It will fail because it has to get to 60 and there's not enough votes to get to 60. So this is all about political theater to keep Manchin happy with the goal that as soon as the S-1 motion to proceed vote fails on Tuesday, they will quickly pivot then and say, Republicans are obstructionists. They continue to not allow you know, a landmark voting rights bill to move forward. They are racist. They're vote suppressors. This is Jim Crow 2.0. I mean, the narrative, Frank, we know the narrative. It's already been written, right? The press headlines for later this week, they've already been written. And so it's then just a matter of, okay, we've kept, we've tried to placate Manchin, and now we want to drive that support into a second bill, which could come up later this summer, called H.R. 4. This is the Voting Rights Act, and this is what is currently being redrafted because, I kid you not, because parts of it are unconstitutional, Nancy Pelosi said so herself, they're redrafting it. And if I had to guess, they will take parts of S1 from the exercise this week they will take some of Manchin's suggestions and they will repackage it all under HR4. And then we're back right to the drawing board. Is, is there enough to nuke the filibuster to move this bill forward? And as long as senators hold their support for the filibuster, then these bills are essentially 
stalled on the runway. But that support is critical, and it's the only way we will keep and save our election. Jessica, thank you for you know sort of laying this out so clearly, and and really, I guess the the question that we've been encouraged to believe is imminent, though, is will Senator Manchin depart from his promises to his constituents and and faithfully representing them as supporters of the filibuster and go with a nuking of it, as you put it, that will enable perhaps just a 51 vote majority to uh, enact these very problematic pieces of legislation, whether it's S1 in one variation or another, or uh, what you say is uh, previously been called at least HR4. That's exactly right. And so the filibuster becomes, you know, it's a it's a Senate procedure. It, it feels out of touch to the grassroots, but it really becomes the nexus by which the left then can have a an open door or open the floodgates to any other sorts of policies, everything from packing the Supreme Court to abolishing the Second Amendment, defunding the police, further encroachment of Obamacare, all these other policies that don't have the votes in the Senate. If the filibuster goes, all of that is is free for all. It's a free game. And so that's why you see the S-1 conversation becoming so um, energized from the conservatives, but then polarizing because the left is trying to drive this narrative to get rid of the filibuster, to pass S-1, and then they can do all of these other things afterwards. Jessica Anderson, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate your visiting with us and laying out this information. Um, It is vital that all of us understand what's afoot and engage. And I, I want to commend you. I was at the Western Conservative Summit this weekend and saw the Heritage Action team there briefing people, getting individuals and and groups, for that matter, um, both up to speed and and actually engaging in this very important public policy debate. And I really salute you for your work. Remind everybody how they can find out more about it and, and participate in it. Visit SaveOurElections.com for everything I just outlined, as well as the fights at the state and local level as well. And thank you, Frank, for having me. This is fabulous. Well, the pleasure is mine. Let me just repeat, SaveOurElections.com is the go-to resource, and I encourage everybody to do that. I certainly will. Thank you, Jessica. Come back to us again with updates very soon, if you would. We appreciate you so much. Next up, we'll speak with Gordon Chang about uh, the latest... Visit us at facebook.com slash securefreedom with Frank Gaffney.